Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you here today. It has been quite an eventful week for us here at the church, obviously, because it was a week ago tomorrow that Pastor Dave had his surgery. If, you're, uh, if you missed last week, uh, one of our pastors had, he was diagnosed with cancer in his tongue. So he had a little bit, they were expecting a seven, eight hour surgery. It lasted 12 hours and they removed a little less than a half of his tongue. And the good part is that the doctors said that they, they didn't see any more cancer. They, took, they thought they got it all, which is the good news. And then they took out some lymph nodes as well. And that's being tested, and we hope that that'll come back in a couple of days, indicating that the cancer had not spread. So we're praying for that. Please pray for that. Um, Sharon and I had an opportunity to see him the other day. He was looking really good. I mean, he's been through a pretty tough uh, time, as you can imagine. I think he's still having a hard time swallowing. He does have a feeding tube. Uh, hope to remove that in a couple of days. He was walking, you know, was up and around, walking around. And I, I know he misses all of you uh, terribly. Uh, but please keep him in your prayers. You can go to our website, southbaycommunitychurch.com, and get uh, daily updates. We didn't put an update there yesterday. We didn't get one, but I understand that, that he was looking really good. So we're very, very, very thankful. Uh, and so please keep, please keep uh, him in your prayers and keep checking that website for more details. And, and hopefully he'll back, be back real soon. The doctor said he's on a, a, a good road to recovery, that he seemed to be ahead of schedule. And so that was really good news. Well, today... We are continuing in our series, God Inside, which, is, which we've been going for about two months now, and it's about the Holy Spirit, about the God who lives inside of us. And I hope the series, uh, we hope it's been informative and inspiring and, uh, in, and informative for you. We probably have a couple more weeks to go. There's some, a couple, few more things we want to talk about. Uh, and today I want to pick up where Pastor Greg left off last week and talk to you about spiritual gifts. Specifically, I want to talk to you about the, the spiritual gift of tongues, the gift of tongues, which is probably the most controversial, misunderstood of all the spiritual gifts. And there have probably been more fights, more uh, confusion, more churches split over this topic than, than any other in the church. And uh, as I prepared for this message, I prayed a lot, studied diligently, and studied hard because I want so much to, to be able to help you to understand what this is all about. And, and this is a very difficult subject. It's a very difficult uh, subject and topic to unwrap from the scriptures. And I know that people feel very strongly about it. If you are one who speaks in tongues, you feel very passionately about it. If you don't, you, feel, you might feel passionately about it. And I know, again, churches have split over this. I've seen churches split over this, and it has been very, very destructive to the church. Um, I just want you to know that we must always look to the truth of the Word of God for our answers. We, we, cannot, uh, we can't allow personal experience to determine what truth is, but we have to look to the truth to see what it says. And hopefully, uh, we'll be able to do that a little bit today and, and next week as well. So I want to begin uh, with prayer, and I have a couple of prayer requests. The first is that the Holy Spirit, if you'd pray that the Holy Spirit would help me to clearly explain the Word of God to you. Second, my prayer is that regardless of what your views are coming into today's message, that you will just check them into the door for at least an hour and that you will hear uh, everything that I have to say. And if you get mad at something, don't walk out in the middle of it. Just stay all the way uh, to the end. And then a third, of course, and I don't plan to say anything uh, that should make you walk out, but third, uh, pray. let's pray for Pastor Dave and, and for his recovery, okay? So let's pray together. Father, thank you. It is so good to be here, Father. I, I love church. I love our church. I love the family here. And God, we all love you. We all love your word. And God, we desire so much to bring glory and honor to you in everything that we do. Father, this morning as we gather, we, our hearts are with Pastor Dave and his family, with Sarah. And I know he's been through a really tough week. But God, thank you so much for seeing him through uh, all that he's been through, and thank you, God, that the doctors think that they've got all the cancer. We pray that that would indeed be the case, that the, the tests that, that they get um, on, the, on the lymph nodes will indicate that. And God, we pray that you would give him strength, that you will give him grace, that, that he'll be able to go home soon, that you will expedite his healing. Father, it's so good to hear the report that he seems to be ahead of schedule, and we pray that that would be the case. And we pray that he'll be able to get all of his speaking functions back as they've reconstructed his tongue. And, and I pray that all those things would begin to work well and that he would get stronger and stronger every day. God, we miss him so much. 
uh, be with him, be with Sarah and the rest of the family members. His dad, I know, is going to be, um, be taking care of him when he gets home. So, God, t- this morning, you know, my prayer again is that you would help me to clearly articulate the Word of God, and I, you know, the Word is, is your truth, and, and we look to you for the answers, and I pray you would speak to us today. And God, I pray that you would open all of our hearts and minds. I know that, that I went into this thinking certain things, and I came out of it thinking some different things. And, and I pray that might be the case even today for all of us. So thank you, Father, so much. We ask you to speak to us now, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at uh, some of the spiritual gifts. We, as Pastor Greg uh, kind of introduced the topic to us, And today, I wanted to look at some of the gifts that are classified as sign gifts or miracle gifts. They're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which Pastor Greg took us through last week. But you you might not have noticed the sign gifts or the miracle gifts, so I want to show you that once again. And I'm going to just do a couple things here. One is, I hope you brought your Bible. Bring your Bibles with you as often as you can to church. If you didn't bring a Bible, we... You received a Baywatch, hopefully, when you walked in. Some of the verses are listed on that sheet. I only say some of them because I'm covering almost 50 passages today, 50 verses today. And if we, it would have taken us three or four pages, of, four or five pages of notes just to get them all on there. So I didn't put them all on there. The incidental verses I did, are not on there. They will all be on the screen in front of you. I put the main verses um, on the sheet for you. You can also look at your Baywatch or not, I'm sorry, you can also open up your South Bay Community Church app and the verses um, and some of the outlines will be there for, for you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you might not have noticed the sign gifts and the miracle gifts. So I want to read that to you one more time. This one, I believe, is in your sheet on, on your notes. Again, like I said, I'll try to point them out to you, which is and which isn't. But here's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Let me read it to you. And it says this, For to one is given through the Spirit. And that's a reference to the spiritual gifts that are given. Right? The utterance of wisdom, the gift of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge. That would be the gift of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse 9. To another, faith by the same Spirit. That would be the gift of faith. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits and to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All right, so if you look at this passage, I highlighted the four sign gifts, those that are classified as sign gifts or miracle gifts, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of tongues, and I grouped that with the interpretation of tongues. All right, so basically four. These are the four classified as sign gifts or spiritual gifts. Now, when it comes to these gifts... These are the gifts, I mean, that have caused so much controversy. Uh, And the critical question, I mean, the critical question that theologians, pastors, and church people have asked for centuries is, which of these sign gifts or miracle gifts are still in operation today? Which are normative? Which are operative? And which of these gifts have ceased? And they're no longer uh, valid for us today. That's the issue that we, uh, I want to try to, take apart today. And that's the issue that has caused so much conflict and division in the church, that some people believe these gifts are valid today, and others believe these gifts have ceased. So um, regarding this issue, regarding the question, are they valid, are they not valid, do they continue, or have they ceased, there are two views. There are two primary views on these gifts. The first view is that the sign or miracle gifts have ceased and all those who believe that the gifts have ceased are, are, would fall in the camp that is referred to as the cessationists. The cessationists believe that the gifts, the sign gifts, have ceased. And then the second view is that the gifts, including the miracle gifts, the healing gifts, tongues, continue in full force today. And that camp would re, re, be referred to as the continuationists. They believe that the, these gifts continue on even today. Now, in order for us to determine whether the sign and miracle gifts have ceased or whether they, have, um, uh, whether they continue on today, I want to start by giving you a little bit of Bible history. And I think this is really important to kind of set the groundwork for where we're going today. And I am going somewhere with this today, so just put on your thinking caps. This is more of a thinking cognitive message. And hold on tight because we're going somewhere with this. A close examination, a close examination of the biblical record shows that miracles were clustered 
around four specific time periods, all right? So it's an examination of the biblical account shows that miracles were clustered around four specific time periods. The first, let me tell you what they are. The first was the time of Moses and Joshua when God delivered Israelites out of Egypt. So this is, uh, I'm just going to put these up here for you. So miracles occurred during the time of Moses and Joshua. It began when Moses first heard God speak to him through a burning bush. It's Exodus chapter 3. Remember, there was a burning bush there, and, and Moses saw that. What's, what is that? And he goes over there, and he sees this bush. It's completely engulfed in flames, but it's not burning. And he stands there, and God speaks to him out of that burning bush. And that was the, that was the first miracle. And God said to Moses that he wanted him to go to Egypt to the king, to Pharaoh, and free his children, free the children of Israel who were in bondage and captive, uh, who were in captivity to the Egyptians for 400 years. And when God told him, I want you to go to Egypt to set my people free, Moses says, I don't want to go. I'm not going to go there. I don't want to go there. And he protested. And here's why he protested. He protested because he thought the Jews wouldn't believe him and Pharaoh wouldn't believe him. So take a look at Exodus chapter 4. It says here, and put it up here for you, then Moses answered to God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. In other words, you're crazy, Moses. God didn't say that to you. God didn't show up in a burning bush to you. And so he said, I don't want to go because they're not going to believe me. Well, here's what God said to him, said back to him in verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground. And it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I would have run from it too. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Right? In verse 5, or it says here that they may believe. Notice that they may believe. God granted to Moses the ability to perform miracles using his staff so that Pharaoh would believe in Moses, that he would believe Moses, and that he came from God, that God had sent him. And to, uh, if you're familiar with the story, Moses did go to Egypt, and he did appear before Pharaoh. He threw down his staff, and he used his staff to perform miracles to, to compel Pharaoh to let his people go. For example, he threw down the staff, and the, the Nile River turned to blood. Moses used the staff, and he struck the nation of Egypt with plagues, with sores and boils and flies and gnats and locusts and thunder and hail and even the death of the firstborn. And so, so that Pharaoh would believe Moses' message and believe that he was sent from God. Not only that, Moses also performed miracles, not only for the, before the Egyptians, but also for the Jews, that they also would believe in God. Remember, the Jews were in cap, had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. They were influenced by their pagan, idolatrous culture. And so he wanted them to believe in God as well. And so right after they finally, the Pharaoh finally let Moses and the people go, they fled Egypt, and the Egyptians decided they had a change of heart. They wanted him back, and so they pursued them. They came up upon the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea. Moses raised his staff, and God parted the Red Sea. Uh, in Exodus 14, it says this. The very last verse, it says this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So, so. The, the Red Sea was parted, and the people believed in God, and they believed in, the servant, in their servant Mo, Moses. And so there was a purpose behind the miracles. The signs and wonders served to validate the messenger Moses and to authenticate the message that Pharaoh might believe in Almighty God. And, and thus Psalm 105, verse 26 and 27 says, He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, and they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Now, after Moses died, Joshua took over, and God granted him the power to perform miracles as well. And the first miracle that Joshua performed was when the people crossed the Jordan River, the Jordan River dried up, just like the Red Sea dried up so that the, 
the Jews could cross on the other side, the Jordan River dried up. And again, I believe that the miracle is very similar as if to say to the people of Israel, here is Joshua, your new leader, and he's just like Moses, so follow him. And so from the time of Moses to the time of Joshua, there was an explosion of miracles, all kinds of miracles, and it all took place within about a 40-year time frame. Within those 40 years, Moses and Joshua performed all kinds of miracles. And then the miracles all but ceased. There were only a few sporadic miracles mentioned in the book of Judges, in the book of Samuel. There were no miracles by David, none by Solomon. And then for approximately 545 years, Elijah, they go on, no miracles. 545 years later, the prophet Elijah shows up, followed by his successor, Elisha. And then suddenly there's an outpouring of miracles, all kinds of miracles. So there are miracles during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, for example, resurrects a dead boy. He proclaims a drought over the land, and there's a drought. He prays, and fire rains down from heaven. Elisha raises a dead boy from the dead. He feeds a hundred men, just like Jesus fed 5,000. Elisha strikes this, the Syrians with blindness, and then he wants to heal them, and he strikes again, and, and their blindness is taken away. He gives them back their sight. The, the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, perform miracle after miracle after miracle. Why? So that the people would believe that they would believe. Elijah, after Elijah raised the boy from the dead, here's what his mother said in 1 Kings 17, 24. Put it up here for you. And it says, And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, the miracle that he, when he raised the boy from the dead validated who Elijah was, and it validated the words that he spoke, that the words that he spoke were truth. And all of Elijah and Elisha's miracles took place within about a 50-year time frame, about 50 years. And then it got quiet. No more reported miracles. Nothing in the scriptures. Nothing by Isaiah. Nothing by Jeremiah. Nearly 275 years go by. And then the prophet Daniel, he arrives on the scene. And once again, there are miracles because of Daniel through the hands of miracles. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream there's the miracle of Daniel in the lion's den. When he's thrown in the lion's den by the king, but he's not e eaten. There's the fiery furnace, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. They're, in, they're thrown in the fire, but they're not burned up. Daniel has visions of the future. There's one miracle after the other. And after the miracle in the lion's den, remember King Darius, who was a pagan king, threw Daniel into the lion's den, and he came out uneaten and unscathed. Here's what the, here's what the king said, Daniel chapter 6 26 and 27. I'll put it up here for you. The king said, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. And by the way, how on earth did the Persian king Darius come to believe in Daniel's God? Verse 27, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. He came to believe because he witnessed the miracles. Because he saw firsthand what Daniel's God can do. And that's why he believed. You see, the reason why God gave Daniel the ability, the power to perform miracles is so that the people around him, even the king, would believe in the one true God. And Daniel performed those miracles. He performed those miracles with during a 65-year period, 65 years, and then nothing. No more miracles. Nothing in the biblical account. No miracles to speak of for 500 years. No miracles by Ezekiel. No miracles by Zechariah. No miracles by any of the minor prophets. For 500 years, there's silence when it comes to miracles. And then Christ is born. Jesus is born. And that was a miracle. God came in human flesh. And 30 years later, at the age of 30, he begins his ministry, and suddenly there are all kinds of miracles. Miracles during the time of Jesus. He healed people, cast out demons, turned water into wine, gave sight to the blind, fed 5,000, walked on water, calmed the seas, raised Lazarus from the dead. I can go on and on and on. And he himself was raised from the dead. And why did Jesus perform miracles? Here's a couple of verses, John 5, verse 36. Jesus said, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, the miracles that I am doing, bear witness, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
these two words bear witness, the Greek word martureo. And by the way, we're going to look at the Greek today in, in various places because the New Testament was written in the Greek. Our Bible is an English translation, and sometimes the English doesn't convey what the Greek really means, and that's the case in, in a number of different situations here today. The Greek martureo, which means bear witness, is translated bear witness, means to testify or to give evidence of, to give evidence. In other words, the miracles that Jesus performed was evidence that he was God, and it was evidence that he was from God, and that's what this is saying. So says something, Jesus says something similar in John 10, verse 25. It says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The miracles are evidence that I am from God and that I am God. Jesus performed miracles for the very same reasons that Moses and, Eli and, and Joshua performed miracles. He performed miracles for the same reasons that Elijah and Elisha performed miracles. He performed miracles for the same reason Daniel performed miracles. It was to validate the messenger and to validate the message so that people might believe. After the very first miracle that Jesus performed, the apostle John wrote this in John 2, verse 11. This would have been the, when Jesus turned water into wine. The very first miracle, recorded miracle for us, it says here, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Right, so this was the purpose. Jesus performed miracles to get people to believe in him. And the, the miracles confirmed the messenger, and it confirmed the message. And the time frame for Jesus' work was about three years. And then he was crucified. And after he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit down to planet earth, and the church was started. And his work continued on through the apostles. Now there's been confusion today about who an apostle is, so let me clear that up for you. A few years ago, someone came to our church and said, you're an apostle. I said, no, I'm not. I said, no, you're an apostle. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you're an apostle. I said, no, I'm not. And the reason why I know that I'm not an apostle is because I don't fit the definition of an apostle. You see, the Bible actually gives us a definition of, the, of, of an apostle. And let me tell you what that is. And you can put this in your program. I believe these are in your notes. But first thing is the, an apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, and it means messenger or someone who is sent out. And so in a very generic sense, that, that could apply to all of us. And if this is what he meant, then, then I can see that he was right. Because in a sense, we are all messengers of Christ. We are all apostolos. We are all uh, those who are sent out by Christ. So in a generic sense, that's true. But here's the more specific um, criteria of an apostle. Second, an apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, of the resurrected Christ. Acts 4, verse 30 through 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And what this is telling us is that an apostle is somebody who actually saw the resurrected Christ in person. He appeared to them after he was raised from the dead, appeared to the apostles. Right? And all true apostles saw Christ with their very own eyes after he was raised from the dead. Third, according to Luke 6, 13, an apostle was someone who was personally called by Christ, pers received a personal call into the ministry by Christ. Luke 16, 13 says, and when they came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So it was a personal call. An apostle received a personal call from Christ. And notice in this verse, it says, it uses the term, there were 12, and it uses the term disciples and apostles, they are interchangeable. The 12 disciples were the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles were the 12 disciples, so they're interchangeable. Fourth, apostles served as the foundation of the church. They were the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2, 19, 20 says, Paul wrote, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are members of the church, Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. The apostles are the foundation. They were the first church planters. They were the ones that after Christ ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. They were the ones that started churches all throughout the area. All right, so an apostle was somebody who uh, is the foundation, foundation of the church. And finally, fifth, God granted apostles the ability, the power to perform miracles. 
They, they perform miracles. Matthew 10, 1 says, And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So they had the power to perform miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So they had the power to perform miracles. Now there were 12 apostles. There were 12 apostles, 12 disciples, but there was one more in the Bible who met the qualifications of an apostle, and that was Paul. Paul was an eyewitness of the resurrection. Christ actually appeared to him on the Damascus Road. He gave him a personal call to follow him. He started churches, and he was able to perform miracles. So Paul was also an apostle, and he identified himself as such in his writings, like in Romans 1.1. And there are many examples. We'll just put this one up here for you. But it says here, this is Paul's salutation at the beginning of his letter, the very first verse in Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart from the gospel of God. So he identifies himself as an apostle here. So altogether, there are 13 men who meet the criteria of a true apostle. And the final question here, the final point that uh, is that, you know, how is it that apostles, why is it that apostles perform miracles? Why do they perform miracles? Well, the answer is found at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 16. And it says here, and I'll put this up here for you. It says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So Christ ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now they go out and preach everywhere, and they preach, and their message is confirmed by miracles that people would believe, that these guys were just a bunch of fakes. They weren't charlatans. Man, these guys are the real deal. We can believe it because they can perform miracles. And so there were miracles during the time of the apostles. And then something happened. According to the biblical account, as churches began to take root and grow and spread, the number of miracles that the apostles performed began to decrease. In fact, with each passing year, they performed fewer and fewer miracles to the point where they weren't performing any miracles at all. And Paul was a great example of that. Take a look at this verse right here, Acts 19, verse 11. Paul was, uh, it says here, and, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of of Paul. He was doing extraordinary miracles by the Apostle Paul. Now, historians say that this verse was written around 54 AD. 54 AD. Now, Christ was crucified, raised from the dead, 33 AD, so that would be about 21 years. Right? So 21 years after Christ is crucified, raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit comes 21 years later, it says here, Paul is doing, God is doing these extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. Six years later, it's now 60 AD. Paul wrote, and I don't have this verse up here for you, but you can write it down and take a look at it yourself later on. But six years later, around 60 AD, this was written in 54, 60 AD, Paul wrote in Philippians 2.27 that his, pen, his friend Epaphroditus was so sick he nearly died. Paul couldn't heal him. He didn't have the power. A few years later after that, maybe eight years later, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.23, he said, if you were sick, he says, if you're sick, drink a little wine. Now, why would he say that if you're sick, you ought to drink a little wine if he had the power to heal you? All right, Vicky, you're sick. Hey, come over here. Let me just heal you, right? Instead of saying, you ought to take a little wine for your stomach because that'll help you out. Why would he say that if he had the power? Well, he didn't have the power. And then a little more than 10 years after Acts 19.11, about 10 years later, when Paul was doing extraordinary miracles, he wrote, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.19 that his friend Tropimus was sick and he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't heal him either. It's as if his ability to perform miracles vanished overnight, just gone. Why? Is Paul getting old? Did he lose his touch? No. It was because there was no longer any need to validate the messenger and the message. People knew who he was. Churches were being established. Churches were beginning to flourish. They were beginning to spread. The New Testament scriptures were slowly coming online. And so there was no need for 
the message to be validated by miracles. You know, the only letter that Paul wrote that mentions anything about miracles is 1 Corinthians. It's the only one. Written around 55 to 56 A.D. None of his other epistles, none of Paul's other epistles says anything about signs and wonders. And you've got to wonder why. If it's that important, why didn't he talk about signs and wonders and miracles in the other letters? You would wonder, you would think that he would if, it, if they were that important. Now, let me just speculate here. All right? Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that miracles began to, let's say miracles completely disappeared by 70 A.D. That would have been, 70 A.D. was when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple for the second and final time. It, final in the sense that, uh, you know, the there will be a third temple, but final in, since we haven't had one since then. That would mean, now if, if miracles cease, again, speculation, if miracles cease by 70 A.D., that would mean that between the time of Jesus and the apostles, that would have been 30 A.D., until the time that the miracles disappeared, 70 A.D., that would be 40 years. That would have been 40 years of miracles. We'd have 40 years of miracles. Now let's do some math. If Moses and Joshua performed miracles for a 40-year period, we'll put these up here for you. If they did it for 40 years, and then it stopped, and if Elijah and Elisha performed miracles for about 50 years, and then it stopped, if Daniel performed miracles for about 65 years, and Jesus and the apostles worked miracles for about 40 years, you add 40 plus 50 plus 65 plus 40, it's 195 years. 195 years of miracles. 195 years of miracles out of what? Thousands of years. Since Moses, 5,000 years, only 195 years of miracles. Now, I share this because that's what the biblical record seems to indicate. However, you must not take that to mean that God does not do miracles. That God does only miracles only during those four periods and that's it. That's not what this is saying and that's not what I believe. I believe God is a God of miracles and I believe that God can do miracles. I've seen God do miracles. I've seen God do miracles in this church. I've seen him do it in my life. I see it every time somebody comes to faith in Christ. That's a miracle. When my dad at 82 years old became a, a Christian, that was a miracle. He was a, there was a guy that said, I'm a Buddhist. I'm going to die a Buddhist. Don't convert me to Christ. I'll never believe. And he came to know Christ. So God does miracles. And so we've we got to be careful how you interpret this information. But... Is it possible that there were four periods, four periods in biblical history where God allowed miracles to explode on the scene for the purpose, for the purpose of authenticating the messengers and the messages so that people would believe? I believe that's the case. That brings me to the gift of tongues. We are first introduced, now that's the introduction, all right? So let's get the tongues. We are first introduced to speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 in 33 A.D., when the promised Holy Spirit comes to planet Earth for the very first time to indwell believers. Let me read it for you. I believe these are in your notes. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So pente meaning five or fifty. So that would have been fifty days after the resurrection. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, so it's a very important passage, very important for the church, because this describes for us the baptism of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell believers. Now, you might recall, we, we talked about this a couple months ago. You might recall that Jesus said that, his, that he was going to ask his father. When Jesus went to heaven, he was going to ask his father to send the Holy Spirit to his followers to live inside of them. And here's, here's one of the verses, John 14, 26. Just put it up here for you. Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All right, so... Imagine for a moment that you're hanging out with Jesus. And he says to you, hey, Justin, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Lisa, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you. 
Now, if you were there and he said those words to you, what would you think? What would your reaction be? I'll tell you what my reaction would be. I'd be like, what do you mean? I don't get it. Like, Holy Spirit, like, what do you mean you're going to send him to us? How will I know that the Holy Spirit has come? I mean, what does he look like? He's going to live inside of me. Well, how's that going to feel? How will I know when he's come to live inside of me? That's what I'd want to know, right? Because up until that time, up until that point, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hadn't come to live inside of them. So they'd, they'd probably be wondering, well, how will I know that the Holy Spirit has come? Well, Acts chapter 2 answers that question for us. It answers the question for us. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Stop right there. They were all together. They, referring to the 12 disciples, and it's important to note here that the they, they were all Jews, and we'll come back to that in a second. They were all Jews, and they're all together, and they're just waiting, right? And then verse 2 says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Take a look at this now. Note this. It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind. It just sounded like one, right? It, was, it sounded like a, a mighty rushing wind just came through the house where they were sitting. This was the moment they'd been waiting for. This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit of God came to live inside of them. And how do they know? How do they know? Verse 3, and it says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, verse 3 and verse 4, circle the word tongues. Circle the word tongues. Notice it's plural with an S. All right, make, make a note there. Just say, write plural somewhere. The word tongues is the Greek word glossa, which means languages. Languages like English or Spanish or Tagalog or Cantonese or Mandarin or Italian or German. It's a specific language. It was languages in this case. And not language singular, but languages plural. And it says these languages came to rest upon them. Now, when I read this verse years ago for the very first time, I thought, that is such a weird looking scene. I mean, what are these divide? Like, you know, my tongue is split and these are... It's, it's on fire and it's on top of everyone's head. That's kind of what this, but that's not what this is saying at all. In fact, verse 3 says the tongues were divided. Circle the word divided. You know, when I hear the word divided, I think of like dividing something. You know, you slice something up. Like if Aaron over here, is you, you get a pizza and you slice it up. Hey, I want a piece of pizza, Aaron. You, you know, so he gets one of those things and he cuts it up like this and everybody gets a slice, right? I, that's what I think if you divide the pizza up so that, into eight or ten pieces so we can all get a piece. That's what I think of. And so what is a divided tongue, right? Divided tongues. Tongues are languages. How do you divide languages? Again, what does this mean? That's where it helps. This is where it helps to go back to the Greek. What does the original language say? What, is, what, is it, what, is it, what does it really say? Not the English translation. And if you look at the original language, the word divided is the Greek word diamerizo, diamerizo, and it means to distribute. It doesn't mean to divide. I don't know why they translated divide. It's, it means to distribute, which means that the languages, the languages weren't sliced up, cut in half. No, the languages were distributed to everybody there so that everybody got some. That's what it means. All the languages were split up so that everybody got some languages. And then it says, the tongues were like a fire. Notice it doesn't say the tongues were on fire, like they're on fire. Get a, get a hose, get a fire extinguisher. This was figurative language. This was a figurative language. For example, if I said Caesar is on fire, right? That doesn't mean, hey, get a fire extinguisher, call the police, Caesar's on fire here. No, he's not on fire. But if I said Caesar's on fire for God, like, well, what does that mean? Like, this guy is passionate. I mean, this guy's he is just Jesus all over him. He's crazy hot for God. That's what that would mean. It's figurative. And that's what this is here, is figurative. I mean, these languages that suddenly came to rest on these people. It was like they were like, they're speaking in these other languages. It was like 
hot, man. It was crazy. It was on fire. God was all over the place because they were doing things that they couldn't do otherwise. It was a miracle. And here's the amplified translation of Acts chapter 2, verse 3. Just put it up here for you. And it's a more, I think this is a more accurate translation of the Greek. And it says, there appeared to them tongues resembling fire, which were being distributed among them, and they rested on each one of them as each person received the Holy Spirit. You see, the tongues or languages were distributed to demonstrate that something miraculous had just happened to them, and that is that the Holy Spirit came to live inside of them. This had never happened before. And so God gave them this crazy, miraculous sign that they might know that the Holy Spirit had just come to live inside of them. It was tongues as of fire. Verse, goes on, verse 6 goes on to say, take a look at it, it says, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The word language there is the Greek word dialecto. It's where we get the word dialect, which confirms it confirms to us that these were languages. This wasn't gibberish. This wasn't gobbledygook. They were speaking specific languages. And it says here, it bewildered them. It freaked them out. Why would it freak them out? Well, verse 7 and on tells us, it says, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, aren't these guys Jews? Verse 8 says, and how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? That's the key verse here. How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They heard in all these different languages, and it freaked them out. It freaked them out because... The Holy Spirit had come upon them and they started speaking in a language that was not their own. In addition, they heard other people of other nationalities speak in different languages that were not their own. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. It was a miracle. It would be like me. If I got up here and if I started speaking Chinese, if I started preaching this whole message in Chinese, it would freak me out and it ought to freak you out because I can't speak a word of Chinese. The only two Chinese words I know is chow men. And that's it. Right? <laughs> And so if you heard me start speaking in Chinese, you'd be like, whoa, what happened to him? That's what was going on here. Like, whoa, what is this? This is crazy. It was an indication. It was a miracle to authenticate what God just did, that the Holy Spirit of God had come to live inside of them. So write this one down. Tongues were a sign. They were a sign. And the tongues were spoken. The tongues that were spoken are listed here. Again, actual languages, all kinds of languages right here. Now, the next time we read about people speaking in tongues is 14 years later in Acts chapter 10. So if you brought, Bible, brought your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10. Let me set this up for you. In Acts chapter 2, it was the Jews who received the Holy Spirit, and they were the ones who spoke in tongues. Remember that we talked about that they referred to the Jews. Now, as you may know, the Jews didn't like anyone who wasn't a Jew. And if you're not a Jew, you're called a Gentile. All right? So I know that we have some people in our church who are Jews. Uh, and if, you're, if, if that's you, you're a Jew. But if you're not a Jew, then we're all Gentiles. Probably most of us are Gentiles in this room. And the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. They didn't like anybody who wasn't a Jew. Jews considered Gentiles second-class citizens. So they looked down on Gentiles. Well, when God decided to send the Holy Spirit to planet Earth to indwell his believers, he didn't send the Holy... He wasn't planning to send the Holy Spirit only to the Jews. But he was planning to send the Holy Spirit to, er, to dwell, er, indwell every single believer. And to drive home that point and to teach the Jews a lesson that the Holy Spirit came for everybody, including the Gentiles, he had a completely separate baptism of the Holy Spirit just for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, 14 years later after Acts chapter 2. And it says in Acts chapter 10... Verse 44, starting in verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, in other words, Peter, who was a Jew, was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, those would be the Jews, they're the circumcised, the believers, the, the, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. You see, 
A bunch of Gentiles heard the message. They believed in Jesus Christ. They were immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit and to prove to the Jewish believers that the Gentiles had just received the Holy Spirit of God, the Gentiles began to speak in tongues. And when the Jews saw that, they said, man, that happened to us. Oh, wow, they got the Holy Spirit too. Can you believe that? And this is significant because tongues were a sign of the miraculous work of God and the fact that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit meant that they were on equal footing. We are on equal footing with the Jews in the body of Christ. And that's why 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, put it up here for you, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. In other words, Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You see, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what nationality you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. In Christ, we are all one. We are all one. And it's clear from Scripture that tongues were these intelligible human languages which believers spoke to confirm that they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you can write this one down. Tongues are intelligible. They are intelligible human languages according to Scripture. Intelligible human languages. Now, the only reference, the only other reference to tongues in the Bible, other than the book of Acts, is in one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians. It's the only other reference to tongues in the New Testament. In chapter uh, 14, Paul seems to suggest, this will freak you out. Uh, in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul seems to suggest one other aspect, one other interesting aspect of tongues. All right, so we know it is an intelligible human language, but he seems to suggest one other thing, interesting aspect about tongues. Take a look at verse 14. It's in your notes or on the screen. Paul said, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. All right? Let me unpack this for you. The word tongue, same word, same Greek word, glossa. It means language. But here's what you need to know about this tongue. It is singular. You may want to write that notation down. It is singular. It is not, it is not plural. It's not multiple languages. It is a single language. It is a single language. And what's fascinating here when he says, for I pray in a tongue, what's fascinating here is that Paul seems to connect the tongue with prayer. He connects, seems to put the two together. And he seems to suggest that you can pray in a language. He says something similar in an earlier verse, in, in verse 2 of the same chapter. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. All right, again, the word tongue is the word glossa, and it is singular, a single language. And notice it says that one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Not one who speaks in tongues, but one who speaks in singular tongue speaks not to men, but to God. What is prayer? Prayer is when you speak to God, right? It's when you speak to God. Prayer is not when you speak to each other. Prayer is when you speak to God. So he says that here... When you speak to God, you speak to God in this tongue. And again, he seems to suggest that tongue, the tongue, or this tongue, is some sort of prayer language, which Paul says no one understands. It's a mystery. In other words, it is an unintelligible language. All this to say, there appear to be, the scriptures seems to support the idea that there are two types of tongues. Two types of tongues. One is an intelligible human language, or language is spoken by men, and the other is an unintelligible prayer language that is spoken to God in prayer. So you can write that one down. Tongues are an unintelligible prayer language. Now, as to the issue of whether tongues have ceased or whether they're still in operation today, here's what I've come up with, all right? Here's what I've come up with. First, after this thorough study of Scripture, I probably spent... 40, 50 hours on this, I don't believe that there is strong evidence that tongues have completely ceased. I don't believe there's strong evidence that tongues have completely ceased. That said, let me show you 1 Corinthians 13, 8, which does say that tongues will cease. 1 Corinthians, this is in your notes, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul wrote, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues they will cease. 
And as for knowledge, it will pass away. So there it is right there. I highlighted for you. As for tongues, they will cease. Now what's not clear from reading this passage is when will it cease? When will it cease? Because that's a $64,000 question. Well, if you look at two verses later, verse 10, it says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, the cessationists will take this passage and use it to argue that tongues have completely ceased. They'll say, you see, uh aha, there it is. The tongues have ceased. Well, I'm not convinced. Um, Is a... First of all, this is a very difficult passage to understand. One of the most difficult passages to, to take apart and to, and to interpret. And it begs questions like, what is the perfect in verse 10? What is the perfect? When the perfect comes, the partial will pass. What is the perfect? Is the perfect the word of God? Is the perfect Jesus? Is, it the, is the perfect Jesus the first time? Or is, it, is the perfect Jesus the second time? It's not clear. It's not clear. And then the other question is, what is the partial? Is the partial tongues or is it something else? And is passed away the same thing as cease? I mean, there are all kinds of questions about this, but the cessationists will take this passage and say, you see, it says the tongues have ceased. And again, among those are Pastor John MacArthur, who I have the, just the utmost respect for, but he believes that tongues have ceased. Now, and when it comes to cessationism, this is it. This is what they say. This is what they use to say it has ceased. And that's why I say, because I'm not convinced that that's what this is saying, I, I don't think that there's strong biblical evidence that tongues have in fact ceased or that they are supposed to cease. Now, on the other hand, on the flip side of that, if you, if you examine the New Testament records as we kind of did today, I think you would be hard-pressed to find anyone speaking in tongues as a language after 70 AD, if not even earlier. And I just picked that number but it's, you know, rough, you know, we saw Paul. He didn't seem to have the gift by 60 A.D. Altogether, you think about this too, the biblical record, the New Testament record. Altogether, there are only three references to speaking in tongues in the book of Acts. And there's only one uh, New Testament epistle, 1 Corinthians, which says anything about tongues. I mean, this is really kind of extraordinary. And if speaking, about, if speaking in tongues is that important to the Christian life, then you have to ask yourself, why didn't Paul say more about it? And the only reason he said anything about it in 1 Corinthians 14 is because they were all messed up over the issue. The church of Corinth was messed up and he tried to straighten them out. Um, add to that, add to this, the testimony of the church fathers. Now let me tell you who the church fathers were. The church fathers were leaders of the early church after the disciples. So according to tradition, the disciples would start these churches and they would hand these churches off to certain pastors and bishops and leaders and they would disciple them and they would hand them off and then they would hand them off and those those early churches the leaders of those early churches were, are referred to as the church fathers for example if you know if um if one of you was a church father right or let's say let's say for example um um, what's a good example? Let's see. So Aaron, I'll just use you as an example again. So let's say Aaron, let's say I was the Apostle Paul and I started this church, right? And I discipled Aaron. And then Aaron starts this church and he starts another church and he disciples Frank over here, right? Well, they would be considered the early church fathers, right? Now, so if you look at what the early church fathers had to say, and again, these are not scriptural, all right? But if you look at the testimony of the early church fathers, they were mostly silent. When you look at their writings, they're mostly silent on the topic of tongues, which seems to suggest, and again, this is just, I know this is a reach, but it seems to suggest that tongues was not practiced in the church because they didn't say anything about it. They said a lot, a lot of things about a lot of other things, but they didn't say anything about tongues. One early church father who did write on the subject of tongues was Augustine of Hippo in the late 300s. And here's what he wrote. I'll put it up here for you. He wrote, in the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believed and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, that's all something we talked about today. These were signs adapted to the time, for it was proper for the Holy Spirit to evidence himself in all tongues and to show that the gospel of God had come to all tongues, languages over the whole earth. The thing was done for an authentication, and then it passed away. That's what he says, right? It's interesting. And then if you go a few hundred years later during the Reformation 
roughly the 16th century, and this is quite a few hundred years later, Martin Luther wrote this. He wrote, This visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit was necessary to the establishment of the early church, as were also the miracles that accompanied the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we understand, we understand why now. Once the church had been established and properly advertised by these miracles, the visible appearance of the Holy Ghost ceased. Again, they, these are church people. They're around. They saw what was going on in the church, and they said, hey, man, we, we don't see it anymore. A couple of hundred years later after that, roughly around 1700s, the theologian Jonathan Edwards, famous guy, wrote this. He said, of the extraordinary gifts, they were given in order to the founding and establishing of the church in the world. But since the canon of the scriptures has been complete, the canon of the scriptures would be the Bible, since the Bible has been complete, and the Christian church fully founded and established, these extraordinary gifts have ceased. All right, so the testimony of early church fathers seems to indicate that there, were, there, were no activity, there was no activity with tongues after 60, 70 A.D., somewhere around there, right? Now, here's one other interesting note. This is Agnes Osmond. Agnes Osmond was born in 1870, attended the Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. On New, Year, on, on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1900, she and her classmates got together to celebrate New Year's. Called it, they called it a watch night service with their teacher, Charles Parham. They got together December 31st, 1900. At their little watch night service, their little prayer meeting, their teacher, Parham, su suggested, urged them to pray, urged the students to pray and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. And shortly after midnight, now it is now January 1st, the year 1901, a couple hours later maybe, shortly after midnight, Agnes claims that Parham laid hands on her and she received the Holy Spirit and she spoke in tongues. Here's what Wikipedia says about that. Wikipedia says that she is the first person to speak in tongues. They she is considered to be the first person to speak in tongues. Now, why would they say that? Well, obviously she wasn't the first person to speak in tongues because the first people to speak in tongues were the Jews that were gathered in that upper room on Pentecost in 33 AD when the Holy Spirit came and baptized them in the Holy Spirit. That's when they spoke in tongues. So they're the first people that spoke in tongues. But Wikipedia writes that she was the first person to speak. People say that she's the first person to speak in tongues because perhaps she was the first modern-day person in modern-day history to speak in tongues because for nearly 1,800 years, since six, roughly 60, 70 AD until 1901, there was no documentation that anyone spoke in tongues. Which means, by the way, that Agnes Osmond's experience, it launched, I don't know if you know this, but she, this experience launched the Pentecostal movement in America. Before that, there was no Pentecostal movement. There weren't any churches that speaking in tongues. There weren't any churches doing miracles. This is where it all started. And then they brought it to Los Angeles and it blew up here. And the Pentecostal movement led to the charismatic movement, which has led to what many people call today the third wave. And so it, it continues on. And if all this is true, if all this is true, we haven't had speaking in tongues except for the last 117 years. Uh, the church was born in Acts 2. It was accompanied by speaking in tongues. According to the New Testament records and the church history, if it's accurate, if it's accurate, speak, speaking in tongues just kind of faded away. But then in 1901, through her, came back. Came back. Which means, again, it's a fairly recent phenomenon. It's been around for only, speaking in tongues, been around for only 117 years. After an 1,800-year hiatus, a lapse. And it begs the question, why? Why did it come back? Was the return of tongues in 1901, was that of God? Was that God's plan? Or was it not of God's plan? You see, those in the cessationist camp believe that all tongues have ceased. They believe no, no languages, no prayer languages, no spoken language, no human languages, right? Nothing. The continuationists, on the other hand, and again, they just came, showed up recently. I mean, the terms are fairly new, but this is fairly new because it's only happened in the last 117 years. Content, continuationists believe that if you spoke in tongues then, you can speak in tongues today. If you did miracles then, you can do miracles today. They believe that all tongues are normative. They believe that all tongues continue on today. So which is it? In case you're wondering, I've never spoken in tongues. 
I wish that I had the gift of tongues. I really do. I wish that I, I, wish that I could speak Jap Japanese, for example. When I go to Japan, I know teriyaki, I know sushi, I can know a few words like that. But I don't, other than that, I go to train station, I'm completely lost. I can't read any of the language. I met my cousin for the first time. I couldn't talk to him. And I wish I had the gift of tongues. Like I could just start rattling off Japanese like crazy. I wish I could do that. I wish I had the gift of tongues so I could speak in Spanish to some of my, to, to some of my Spanish-speaking friends. I wish I, could, I wish I could have the gift of tongues so I could speak in German and Italian and all these other languages. Wouldn't that be awesome? But I, I don't have that gift. And I, to be honest with you, I've never met anyone in 40 years as a Christian, over 40 years as a Christian, I've never met anyone who could supernaturally speak in a language that wasn't their own. Now, that's not to say that someone, you know, can't do that. God can do anything. But, but I've never met anyone in all my years as, as a pastor and as a Christian. I've, I've never seen that happen. Now, I've also never prayed in tongues. I've never prayed in tongues. But I've heard people pray in tongues. And I know people who pray in tongues. I know people in our church who pray in tongues. And as I wrestle with this question of whether tongues have ceased or not, or whether they continue to go on here today, here's what I came up with. I came up with this. I wonder whether the cessationists and the continuationists might both be a little bit wrong. That they might be both a little bit wrong. What if, and I think I have more questions than I have answers, but what if tongues as a language have ceased? Which, explain, because, which explains why we don't, we don't need the Holy Spirit to do, we don't need to speak in languages in order to know that we receive the Holy Spirit. We know we receive the Holy Spirit when we, at the point of conversion, when we ask Christ to come into our lives because the Scriptures tell us so, right? And we know that. We simply read that and we will know that. We tell others about that. You receive the Holy Spirit the moment you believe in Christ. But you didn't have to speak in tongues to know that. You heard that here because we teach it. It's in the Bible, right? Which also explains why if people don't have this language, explains why when we go on mission trips, for example, and most missionaries go on mission trips, they got to take a translator or they got to go there and they got to learn the language and they got to study hard. And I know that our, our team that's going to do a VBS in Japan, they're going to be there for 18 days doing three VBSs. Um, they're going to take a translator with us because none of them can speak any Japanese and they have no idea how they're going to communicate with the kids. So they got to take a translator with them. And we got to study hard. We got to make that happen. And so uh, we know we receive the Holy Spirit because the Bible tells us, and that's exactly, essentially the same reason why miracles, why Moses and Joshua, why they did miracles and it disappeared, why Elijah and Elisha did miracles and it disappeared, Daniel did miracles and disappeared, and even after the apostles, because after a while, the authentication, the validation isn't needed. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13.8 again, I guess point this out to you. You're almost done. It says tongues will cease, right? The tongues, it's plural, right? The tongues refers to many languages. So could it be that the fact that, could it be that the languages are what ceases? And again, we haven't seen evidence of it in the last 18, 2,000 years. Uh, even with the rise of the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement, I don't even see it there, right? The tongues, the word tongues is plural. And it seems to me, here's what I found in my study. It seems to me that every time the word tongues appeared in plural, it referred to multiple languages. Every time it appeared in the singular form, it referred to a prayer language. So there, there seems to be a real distinction here. So again, I ask the question, could, could tongues as a language have ceased at the same time? I'm going to throw this out there. Could tongues as a prayer language be normative? Could tongues as a prayer language, could it still be around today? Now, there seems to be a lot of anecdotal evidence to support that because I know people in this church who speak, who have a, who speak in their private prayer language. You know, they have their own private little prayer language. But I, I need to add, you can't rely on anecdotal evidence to determine truth, right? And, and I would also add that it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that if you have a prayer language, that it continues or that it ceases. There's nothing in the Scriptures that says that. I'm just speculating. Is it possible that one is ceased and one continues today. I've never heard anyone ever advance that theory before. Everyone always says, it's all gone, or it all continues. I'm saying, could one be here, and could one be gone? That's what I'm asking, right? That's what I'm asking. So, fascinating stuff. 
I just want to throw it out there for you. Now, before you go out there and start speaking in tongues and jump to conclusions about what I believe on this, come back next week. We're going to, talk, we're going to unpack this some more, the whole tongues thing. We're going to unpack this some more and see what else it has to say about even speaking in tongues as a prayer language, all right? Meanwhile, I mean, I said some things. I'm shocked I even said it. Um, meanwhile, please don't go out telling everybody that SBCC, South Bay Community Church, is going Pentecostal or charismatic. We're not ready to do that yet, all right? There's more to come. Come back next week, all right? Let's close our time in prayer. Wow, Father, I love, I love this stuff. I love trying to understand your word. And, you know, the, the truth is, sometimes it's too profound and it's too complicated for us to understand. And maybe that's what you intended. So there are some things that you are silent on. And I just pray, God, I, you know, it breaks my heart that the, the issue of some of the sign gifts have torn the church apart. And it has split churches and it has caused so much destruction. I pray, God, that you would help us to land at a place where that will never happen here. That you would always protect us God, from divisions and from conflicts over such issues. And Father, I, I thank you for how Paul wrote the scriptures that sandwiched between the two chapters on spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is chapter 13, and that's about love. And I thank you for that. And I believe you put it there that we might always remember that when it comes to the gifts or anything else, what we need to remember is love. What we need to do is love. Love in the church. Love those outside of the church. Love your word and love you. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to us. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to what it is that you would have for us. I pray that you would lead and guide and direct my thoughts and my studies and in the coming weeks. God, thank you for your word. It is so rich. I thank you for the history. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you that you are a God of miracles, that even today you can do anything, and I've seen you do it. So thank you, Father. We love you so much, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.